Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General Podcast. I am Al, and welcome to the first episode of 2017. You know, I've never really liked January. It's, I don't know, it's always been my least favorite time of the year, and I think one of the reasons why is just there's a whole different mood behind this time of year. And at least when you compare it to the last month, December, I mean, December, yeah, you know, in my neck of the woods in northeast Wisconsin, yeah, it gets kind of cold and kind of snowy sometimes, but at least you've got Christmas and the holidays to look forward to. And, you know, one of the nice things about Christmas is even if you don't celebrate it as a religious holiday, you can still see it as a time to get together with your family and friends. And there's still other things about that time of the year you can appreciate. Like, you know, of course, hey, who who doesn't like the idea of drinking lots of eggnog and stuffing yourself with Christmas cookies? And, of course, uh, other places will sometimes have their seasonal things like, you know, peppermint hot cocoa or peppermint cappuccino, you know, stuff like that. Also, there's, of course, lots of uh, traditional Christmas specials on this time of year, whether it's the classic Rankin and Bass uh, features like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer or one of my personal favorites, The Year Without a Santa Claus, uh, of course, the Charlie Brown Christmas special and many others. And, you know, of course, there's lots of festive music playing on the radio and, you know, there's even a lot of good uh, secular holiday songs that... I think we all can agree our our classics like, you know, Over the River and Through the Woods and, you know, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas or Let It Snow. Just, you know, music that for a lot of us, I think, brings back positive memories, uh, especially when you're a kid. You know, Christmas is always a fun time. and But once you get past New Year's Eve, you're missing that holiday feeling. I, I mean... Really, there's no major holidays until, well, I guess depending on, you know, what religiously anyway, uh, what religion you follow, usually you don't start seeing any new ones until like March, April, but not going to get into those right now. And I I think, again, January is just a bit darker time of the year because in December, at least in my area, a lot of people will put up. Christmas lights. So I drive home from work at night and, you know, I'll usually pass quite a few houses that are brightly lit up. And sometimes you can even see the Christmas tree through the window. But unfortunately, after uh, New Year's Eve, eventually people stop turning on their Christmas lights at night and, you know, you no longer see the Christmas tree lit up through the window and people start putting away their holiday decorations and, uh, like I said, the picture I talked about of uh, many episodes ago, it had a on the top. It had a snowman and a brightly lit up Christmas tree, and it said, "December, a winter land of holiday cheer and lights." And then on the bottom half, it had the snowman was all like frowning and you know gray, and the Christmas tree was wilted, and the you know pine trees are all on the ground, and it said, "January and February, a two month long bucket of suck." Well, that's pretty much true because, again, at least in my area, January, it's usually one of two things. It's either freeze your butt off cold or it's not as cold, but you're getting five or six inches of snow. But anyways, on to today's topic. I'm going to be doing another historical gaming episode today, and we're going to be looking at the Philippines. Now, uh, let me tell you what made me think about doing this. I I wanted to do another historical gaming episode, and I was thinking about some different places to to try. Unfortunately, I didn't really have as much time as I wanted to to be able to do the research and put it together. And I was thinking back about one of my old martial arts instructors. And again, longtime listeners to the show, you'll probably remember that I've talked about a little bit of my martial arts background. I've studied karate and uh, tiger claw kung fu 
and also Anayan Eskrima, which is a Filipino martial art. And that's when I thought, you know, that might be an interesting topic for an episode of how to run a Dungeons and Dragons campaign in the Philippines. Now, when I first was planning this episode, I thought, you know, I'm probably going to focus a lot on the martial arts aspect of it. But as I was looking more and more into Filipino mythology and folklore, I actually found a lot of interesting things. So let's dive right in. And the Philippines, it's an interesting place. Its location made it a mishmash of different cultures. During its history, it was influenced by India and China. Uh, For a while, uh, two of the major religions in the Philippines were Buddhism and Hinduism. Uh, Later in the 1300s, the Filipinos came in contact with Arabs from the Middle East and then Europeans in a little bit later on in the 1500s, and that's when the the Spanish uh, tried to take over the Philippine Islands. So, like with most historical campaigns, the the big flavor of it is really going to depend on which time period you choose. And most of my research, I was looking into the pre- uh, Islamic and pre-Spanish uh, contact with the Philippines. So, for the most part, this is going to be before the 12 or 1300s. So, let's start by taking a look at the different Dungeons & Dragons classes and how you might want to work those into a Filipino campaign. Now, of course, like most Uh, of the historical gaming episodes, fighters are going to be extremely easy to work into the campaign as they're more or less people who fight. And the Filipinos, they they love to fight. One of the things I learned from uh, my Screamer instructor back in college is that yeah, the, I guess at that time, and this was in the 90s, you know, the Filipinos over the last, like, I think 400 years or so have only spent about 30 of those years not engaged in some sort of conflict with somebody. Also, another couple other things before we get too far into the episode here. First, of course, I have to give you the pronunciation warning. I'm going to be using a lot of the... uh a lot of words from the uh, Filipino languages, so I don't know how to correctly pronounce these, so chances are I'm going to be mispronouncing a lot of things. Now, when I talk about the martial arts, the I'm going to be referring to it as Eskrima, and that's just because, again, the instructor that I learned Filipino martial arts from, he always referred to it as Eskrima, so that's what I'm going to call it. Uh, the Filipino martial arts actually goes by a couple other names as well. Kali and Arnis are two of the more common names. Other people just use a blanket term, FMA, which is short for Filipino martial arts. But when I'm talking about martial arts, I'm just going to use a screma because like I said, that's that's the term that I was learning when I was studying this martial art. So the fighter, again, not very hard to convert. Uh, Pretty much any sort of fighter, your main limitations are going to be on weapons and armor. One class that I've had trouble fitting into some of my other historical gaming episodes that will actually work quite well in the Philippines, though, is the monk. So if you're playing a first edition or basic as Basic had a class called the Mystic, which was essentially a monk. But uh, you know those editions, or three point, you know three point oh and later, when the monk became a core class again, the monk is going to be very easy to fit in, because uh, again, Eskrima is a martial arts. So it, now, of course, there can be just regular fighters that practice martial arts, and just about any anyone in a Filipino campaign can really study Eskrima. 
But since the monk is seen as the person who not only studies the weapon combat of a martial art, but also the unarmed combat, the monk would actually be right at home. And also, as I mentioned before, the Filipinos did have some contact with India and China. So, yeah, you are going to have those cultures influencing the monks in the Philippines as well. Now, the ranger and the bard both are interesting cases. As far as the spell casting aspects of both those classes, I think if you wanted to allow a ranger or a bard, you should probably take out the spell casting classes or the spell casting aspects of those classes. With the ranger, you could very easily have that as someone who patrols the the jungles looking for monsters and other threats to his village, as well as maybe being someone who chooses to protect nature. So whether you want to give him the spellcasting ability is up to you, but I don't see anything wrong with allowing a ranger into the campaign. And of course the bard can also fit in as well as being just more or less a a singer-storyteller, a musician, you know, not not really much for the aspect of the jack-of-all-trades, master of none, but I suppose if you did want to give the bard magical abilities, probably take away the thieving abilities, because that's not going to really be as appropriate for someone who's more or less a, you know, a musician and an entertainer. In a case like that, though, you could allow them to have magic use as long as the magic that they're sticking to is primarily going to be stuff that can be used to enhance their performance, such as a lot of the illusion and enchantment magic. Now, when it comes to the Paladin, pretty much out of place. In the brief amount of time I had to do research, I couldn't really find anything that would fit a holy lawful good warrior so if you are going to introduce paladins into the campaign that would probably be better suited for later on like during the you know the spanish conquest of the philippines because you know at this time you know, a lot, some of the stuff that we would associate with a Paladin, you know, these codes of chivalry and mounted combat and, you know, wearing heavy armor, uh, that is going to be a bit more in place if you are going to set it in the, the later times. Now, the other class that I wouldn't really recommend is the Druid. Again, if you wanted to have someone who's more or less just a nature priest who maybe lives as a hermit out in the wilderness and tries to protect nature, not necessarily harmful to the campaign, but I don't necessarily see it as something that would fit in very easily, especially when we consider that the Druid class is influenced by a specific type of priesthood that was common to uh, to continental Europe. Thieves, again, I can very easily see thieves working into the campaign, so they could pretty much be allowed with just about uh, with all of their abilities intact. Again, backstab and a lot of their thieving abilities, like being able to move silently and being able to climb and you know act as spies and assassins, very much appropriate. Well, now we're going to get to the part where I'm going to be doing a lot of mispronunciation as we talk about the cleric and the wizard. Now, there were in various religious traditions that were in that were uh, active in the Philippines before the before Arabs and Europeans uh, ventured to the continent. As I mentioned before, Buddhism and Hinduism was not unknown in the the Philippines at that time. So if you do have any of the versions of legend and lore, you could use the various Indian deities that are listed in that supplement. Now, one type of clerical class you could introduce into your Philippine campaign would be the Babalon. And these types of clerics, they were generally female. They served more of a role as being a, a folk healer, a prophet, 
and a miracle worker. So that's probably the closest to a priestly character that you could find when you're dealing with the indigenous populations. But uh, like I said, Hindu clerics and Buddhist clerics would be very much in place in this particular time period we're talking about. Now, as with most historical campaigns, when you're looking at the wizard, it's probably best to keep it to the specialist wizards where they tend to apply more subtle means. Again, wizards running around casting fireballs, lightning bolts, etc., etc., not very appropriate to historical campaign. However, black magic was also known in Filipino culture. So again, I'm going to be doing a lot of mispronunciation here, uh, but I did find several types of uh, wizards that I think would work very well in a historical campaign. First is the Manamal, not sure if I pronounced that correctly, um, Ball. But this type of character was more or less a white necromancer, if you have the second edition player's handbook, I'm sorry, the second edition complete necromancer's handbook, in that book they talk about three types of necromancy. Black necromancy, which those are the spells that are designed to harm people. Gray necromancy, which isn't really harmful, isn't really hurtful. And then white necromancy. So these are the types of necromantic spells that are primarily designed to be beneficial to the caster or his allies. And that's what this first type of spell caster would practice, white necromancy. They were seen more as an herbalist or an alchemist than a wizard, but it was believed they could perform magic. Now, the most important job of this type of spell caster is to reverse the effects of other types of black magic. The next type of wizard specialist is the Mam Babarang. Now, this type of wizard had beetles that were fed a special diet. And when the beetles were ready, the sorcerer would tell the the beetle the name of the victim, and then the beetle would go and seek the victim out, and then enter through a bodily orifice in order to cause pain, discomfort, and disease. Now, the nature of the discomfort or the disease depends on where the beetle enters the body. They enter through the ear, you're going to have an earache. They enter through the throat, you're going to have a sore throat if they enter through the mouth. And hemorrhoids, if they go in through the outdoor, if you know what I mean, you're going to get hemorrhoids. So you could very easily see how before you know, medical uh, science became what it has, how people could have blamed common ailments like that, you know, sore throats or earaches, hemorrhoids, on someone using beetles to enter their body and cause this discomfort. Another type of wizard is the barang. And this type of wizard summoned spirits primarily for the purpose of causing discomfort and sickness. As far as I could tell, not really consulting spirits to cause death, but I could see them summoning spirits to cause uh, pain in indirect means. I mean, like maybe push someone downstairs or, well, off the side of a cliff or into a dangerous situation, as as well as causing various uh, types of discomfort and, and pain. Now, the next three types of wizards are actually kind of similar to the voodoo priests uh, that we hear about in uh, Haitian uh, religion and culture. First, there is the, the haplet. This type of wizard uses a doll in a similar fashion to how uh, Hollywood usually portrays voodoo dolls, you know, where you've got a doll of someone that maybe has like uh, one of their fingernail clippings embedded in it or maybe has some of their hair or a tooth or some other part of that person's body and, you know, you stick a needle into it and then that person feels pain. You know, you hold it over a fire, they 
get a fever, you know, put it in cold water and they start to get the chills. The Pactol was a wizard that did a similar thing, but he used a skull instead of a doll. So this type of wizard would focus more on causing injuries or ailments or discomfort that would affect the head. So I could see them using these uh, skulls that they use to not only create like headaches, but even things like uh, muteness, you know, or or uh, deafness or blindness. Finally, there's the Laga. This type of wizard, he worked his magic by boiling something that belonged to the intended victim. So if they managed to find one of the victim's shoes or a piece of their clothing, what they would do is they would boil that item in hot water. And then this was designed to cause a very slow, gradual death. So it might start out when they first boil the your belonging that maybe your character might start to feel a little nauseous. Maybe he might have problems sleeping or have headaches. And then eventually he'll not be able to sleep at all. If he's a spellcaster, won't be able to regain spells. Maybe he'll not be able to eat or drink anymore. And again, eventually you would suffer death. So as you can see, we have wizards here that have several different ways to inflict pain, discomfort, and misfortune on their enemies. So that's what would make the Mananibal uh, a very important uh, ally to have because it said that he had ways to counter the effects of these other types of black magic. Now let's move on to martial arts. And this is something that I can see allowing any character to be able to use. So what is a screamo? Now a screamo actually has many different forms. And the style I studied was called Inayan Eskrima, named for its founder, uh, Master Mike Inayan. I've had the fortune to, I man, I did meet him in person twice before he passed away and uh, even had a chance to meet his son. His son came and gave a demonstration at a karate studio that I used to, to study at. And the Inayan style of Eskrima I studied had five different branches. You started out with Sinawali de Quares, which they're actually two different things. Sinawali is using two sticks. De Quares is using one stick. So this is very important in how you might want to structure a martial art based on a screamer. If you are using the second edition complete ninja's handbook, they do have some different styles of martial arts in there. And they categorize them as hard, soft, or hard, soft. And from my experience, I would classify a screamer more as that, that middle ground where it incorporates some elements of hard styles and some elements of soft styles. Now, in a lot of hard styles, it relies on very linear footwork. Soft styles tend to rely on more circular movements. Now, in a screamer, most footwork was based off of a triangle. And there were two types of triangles, uh, the male triangle and the female triangle. A male triangle would be a triangle where the, the point is facing towards the opponent. The male triangle was used primarily for offense. Now, the female triangle, this would be with the point of the triangle pointing towards you and then the uh, the wider end uh, pointing towards the opponent. And the female triangle was used primarily for defense. So the, the defensive part of Eskrima was more stepping towards the attacker and off to the side. And to quote my Eskrima instructor, when he was telling us between the, the difference between the male triangle and the female triangle... You're welcome to come up with any perverse method you'd like to. Remember to keep the two apart. So the first part, again, was a Sinawali de Quartus, and that's where you picked up a lot of the basics. And one of the things that you see in a lot of the uh, this part of Eskrima, a lot of the techniques here would fall into the category of simple but effective. 
And that's because a lot of the people who needed to learn how to use this art, they weren't professional soldiers or warriors. They were merchants and farmers who needed a easy-to-learn way to defend themselves from attackers. The second part of uh, this style of a scream I studied is called cadena de mano, which means chain of hands. And this was your unarmed part of Escrima, and a lot of the attacks that were used, that I learned in Cadena de Mano when I studied that part, primarily upper body. So more fists, elbows, not a lot of kicks. Uh, there were knee strikes. Usually kicks were kept low, uh, below the waist. So usually you were going to be kicking the the knee or the the thigh. Next is Largamano, which means longhand. Now, Cinewalian de Quirtus, for that you focused on using sticks that were probably about the size of a short sword. Largamano covered the longer weapons, something that would be similar to like a long sword or a hand and a half sword, as well as the staff and the spear. The next style, which I never got an opportunity to, to learn, was called Espada y Daga, which means sword and dagger. So this was using a short sword paired with a knife. And finally, the most advanced of the styles is Serrata. And this was using a shorter stick. Uh, the length of a Serrata stick was ideally from your armpit out until your wrist. Now, as far as the different types of attacks and techniques you would learn with with these styles, uh, with the 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 dequerdus part, a lot of times you weren't using a shield, but you were usually using a single stick. So, in game terms, I could see giving someone who's proficient in a screama a defensive bonus if they are armed with just one stick and nothing else in their offhand. The reason why is you learned a lot of blocking and countering as well as your defensive footwork. Also, when you're studying Eskrima, I could see also allowing proficiency with dual wielding weapons, but only if they are identical size, because, uh, well, I guess it depends how far you get, because, like I said, Sinawali was using two sticks of equal length, whereas the Espada Idaga was using a longer weapon and then a shorter weapon. A lot of the stick techniques we learned, it was based off of block, and then after you've blocked an attack, then countering. Another one of the things that made this part effective is you really weren't taught how to react to specific attacks, but more angles of attack. Since you are usually responding to an angle as opposed to a specific attack, that's one of the things that made a scream up fairly easy to pick up. And there were all sorts of different counters. I remember after you blocked, you could uh, do attacks with the butt of the stick. Uh, there were other ones that were designed to trap your opponent, like with a stick lock or disarming the opponent or also even using the stick to help with a takedown. Now going back to the empty hand techniques, in addition to learning how to uh, punch and usually not block, it was more based on parrying the attack, so redirecting as opposed to stopping it. One of the important drills we learned in Cadena de Mano was called lock flow. And lock flow is probably the, the closest thing that Eskrima has to the traditional forms you would see in other martial arts like karate or kung fu. And it was designed as a, a drill you would do with a partner to help you memorize these techniques. And the thing that was fun about the, the lock flow, in addition to blocking and parrying attack, but it was based on, okay, after you've blocked an attack, going into a joint lock. And then not only that, it also folk taught you how to escape a joint lock. So it was very important to not only know how to put someone in an, a shoulder lock or a, an elbow lock, but also how to escape those situations. 
Another important tactic that you see in unarmed discrema is something called limb destruction. Limb destruction is when you are attacking specific points on an opponent's uh, arm or leg because, well, if you break your opponent's right arm, they're not going to be able to throw any right punches at you. Now, limb destruction isn't the stuff we see in, you know, like a lot of the old kung fu movies where, you know, you touch a nerve point and then magically that person can't move their arm. It was more based on striking nerves and pressure points as well as making a joint move in a direction it's not designed to move. And these are things that would cause pain, discomfort, and anywhere from short-term to long-term injury because, again, as I said, you break an opponent's arm, they're not going to be able to punch you with that arm anymore. Another important aspect of Eskrima is knife defense. Knives are very common weapons, both back then as well as now, because they're easy to obtain, they're easy to conceal, but more importantly, when you're talking about back in the, the old times, the knife was could not only be used as a weapon, but it was also a very important tool. So if you carried a knife around, it didn't necessarily mean that you were looking to go stab people. It meant that you worked for a living, because... Didn't matter if you were a farmer or a fisherman or a merchant, chances are you needed a knife for some aspect of your job. So being able to defend yourself against knives was very important. Again, as my instructor always told us when we were studying the knife defense, um, he always said, well, if someone pulls a knife on you, the most important thing is you have to accept the fact that you're going to get cut but you can control where you get cut. So the important part of the reactive knife training was not only trying to neutralize the attack, but to position your body so if you do get hit with that knife, it's not going to hit you somewhere that is going to cause you to bleed out rapidly. You try to get make sure that you're getting cut somewhere that's not vital. Well, now let's move on to weapons. Now, if I learned anything in Eskrima, one of the things I learned is that Filipinos love bladed weapons. So pretty much any bladed weapon from a knife to a a long sword or a hand and a half sword is appropriate for a historical Filipino campaign. Now, the Filipinos are not large people. And as far as I know, they really didn't have anything that would be considered a a dedicated two-handed sword, you know, like the German Zwiehandler or uh, the uh, the Japanese, I think it's called the Nodashi, but yeah, nothing that you needed to use with two hands. Most of their weapons were one-handed or hand-and-a-half weapons. Now, I'm not sure if they really used axes for combat or if they would have been more tools, but there were several types of knives and swords they used. One of the most common is the barong, and this is a wide-bladed knife. So again, if you were a farmer or a fisherman, chances are you carried around a barong because you would use that for your day-to-day work. Probably one of the most well-known Filipino weapons is the kris. And it's kind of like the European Flambridge swords, where the blade is wavy, uh, so it's supposed to look like flame. Now, whether that really inflicts a significant amount more damage, that I'm not sure, but they sure look cool, that's for sure. And a crisp blade could be anywhere in size from, you know, about the size of a dagger all the way up to a long sword. Probably the most impressive Filipino sword is the Campalon. And this is, well, it could be about the size of a long sword to a a hand and a half sword. Now this type of sword often had a large pommel that was carved or decorated to look like the head of a lizard or a dragon. Most of the blade was uh, flat, so it was more or less a straight sword. But... At the tip, it would often have a small hook 
that could be used for various trapping and disarming techniques. But perhaps the weapon that Eskrima is most well known for are sticks. Usually you used two different types of sticks. Uh, the sticks that I always used in Eskrima class were rattan. And the reason we used rattan for training, it's a bit of a lighter wood, but not only that, it was flexible, so that helped prevent it from causing uh, injuries because of accidental contact. But also when you have a lot of abuse with those sticks, they tend to, they don't splinter the way that uh, a normal wooden stick would. And yeah, I've still got my old Eskrima sticks. And one of the things we did right away is we, my instructor always had us tape up our, the end of our sticks with electrical tape because that just helped reinforce it a little bit so it didn't uh, splinter as much. And I even remember my instructor had a stick that was a little bit bent. So we always, we affectionately named it the ugly stick. <laughs> but uh, the other type of stick you might see is a stick made of kamagong. And kamagong is a much denser wood. So a kamagong stick, this is the one that would use if you really wanted to hurt somebody. And as I mentioned before, we also had the staff and the spear. Now, the way that the Filipinos usually fought with a staff was a little bit different than what you see in a lot of styles of karate and kung fu. In a lot of martial arts, when you're using a staff, you're holding it. One hand is about one third of the way from one end. The other is about a third of the way for the other. So you've got both ends to attack. Filipino staff fighting, usually you are holding it both at one end because, well, if you've got this six foot long length of, of, of weapon, why are you just limiting yourself to a short end? You're going to use the full length to put as much distance between you and your attacker. Now, as far as armor goes, as far as I know, probably the most, uh, probably the most uh, advanced armor they would have had would have been probably brigadine or chainmail. A few months ago, I went with my son on a field trip to the Wisconsin uh, War Veterans Museum, and they had a display there about the Filipino-American War. And in that one, they did have some... Uh, I remember they did have a suit of armor, which would essentially be brigadine. It was uh, more of like a leathery armor that had plates and chainmail on it. But the reason you're not going to see a lot of heavy armor in the Philippines is the temperature down there is quite hot. It's usually in the upper 70s. So it's a warm, humid, tropical climate. So you're probably not going to want a lot of heavy armor. So at most, you're probably going to maybe have something equivalent to leather armor and a shield, but... That's also why in Eskrima, you, you focus a lot on parrying and evasion. And I, I could see giving Eskrima doors who are not wearing armor a bonus to their armor class because they're going to be used to using these defensive movements. As far as metal armor goes, you're not really going to see more of that until or unless you're doing a campaign set in the, the time of the Spanish conquest of the islands. Because uh, then you would see, well, I'm not sure if they were using plate mail by then, but they were usually using at least a breastplate, a helmet, and then uh, probably like metal knee pads or shoulder pads. Well, next we move to some of the various uh, deities worshipped by uh, Filipinos. Now, again, depending on, the dominant religion is really going to depend on the time period. Um, during the 1300s, a significant portion of the islands did convert to Islam. And then after the Spanish conquest, Roman Catholicism became the predominant uh, religion of the Philippines, though there is still a population of Muslims as well as even today there are people who practice the indigenous religions. As I mentioned before, we do know that there were uh, Hindus that were in the Philippines, so in addition to the deities I'm about to uh, go over, you could also use uh, Hindu deities as well. Now, the first deity is Bathala, and this was the supreme creator god. It's associated with the 
Tigmanukan bird, which was seen as its messenger. It was said that how this bird was seen flying across the sky was often seen as an omen that predicted either success or failure. Next we have Idyanael, and this is the goddess of labor and good deeds. Another uh, deity we have is Damangan, and this was the god of the harvest and also the husband of Idanale. There was also another fertility goddess, Lakapati, and she was said to be very benevolent as, again, she was a goddess of farming and agriculture and fertility. We also have Amenakable, and this is a sea god that was well, similar to Poseidon or Neptune in terms of his temperament. Um, as a sea god, he was often believed to send storms um, that would cause destruction on the islands. One interesting character is Anagali, and this was the goddess of lost things. So I just thought that was kind of interesting because when you're looking at a lot of the pantheons of the world, you don't really see a, a god or a goddess associated with uh, lost things. Now, if you're looking for a war god, there is Apollaki, and this was the god of the sun as well as the god of war and warriors. Dion Masalanta is the goddess of love and childbirth. Other important figures we see in Filipino mythology are the Anito. Now, these are not gods or deities, but they're more similar to nature spirits or ancestral spirits. So, because of the belief in these types of beings, we can easily incorporate some D&D monsters like the Dryad and the Nymphs. Now, one concept we do see in some of the indigenous Filipino religions is Gaba. And it's similar to karma in that it's kind of like that mentality that you reap what you sow or your actions come back to you. However, it's not necessarily karma as it's pictured in some Eastern religions. Rather, uh, the word means something along the lines of divine retribution. And this is punishment that was delivered by spirits as opposed to gods. Now, unlike karma, gaba is always punishment, whereas in some religions like uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, Wicca, some neo-pagan religions, uh, karma is seen as, again, what goes around comes around. You do bad, bad things happen to you. You do good, good things happen to you. And in the case of Hinduism, karma was seen more as duty. Uh, like, for example, if you were born to a, a farming family. Well, in order to get good karma, your duty was to be a good farmer. You didn't pretend to be an artist or a warrior or a priest because that's not the family or the caste that you were born into. Well, next we get to some of the monsters of Filipino mythology. And again, some of these are actually quite similar to creatures that we see in Dungeons and Dragons already, so it wouldn't be that hard to convert some of these monsters from a D&D &D setting into a historical Filipino setting. One of the more fascinating creatures is called the Aswang. I think I'm pronouncing that. It's A-S-W-A-N-G or Aswang. Um, yeah, I'm not sure exactly how that's pronounced, but Essentially, this is a shape-shifting monster similar in nature to a vampire in that it fed off of blood and had to kill people in order to survive. However, unlike traditional vampires in D&D, &D, these types of vampires are not killed by sunlight. However, much like Dracula as pictured in the Bram Stoker uh, novel, these types of vampires are weakened when they are exposed to sunlight. Now, in Aswang, they try to blend in with their communities. And unlike the chaotic evil vampires we see in D&D, &D, this type of vampire could actually be 
uh, made an ally or a friend. And in fact, this type of creature did have some sort of code of ethics. It would not attack its neighbors. So what they would usually do is they would try to do their hunting far away from the community that they chose to live in. It was said one way you could recognize an um, Aswang is by, during the daytime anyway, is by looking at its eyes. If its eyes were bloodshot, you might have an Aswang because it was probably up all night trying to hunt. Now, like Western vampires, there were a variety of ways to kill these creatures. Garlic, salt, and religious items were believed to keep these monsters away. It was said it could also be killed by using a whip made from a stingray's tail. Also, they could not enter holy or sacred areas. Another interesting being is called the Nuno, and this type of creature looks like a short old man. It was said that a Nuno had the ability to curse people. Now, a Nuno is not necessarily evil, but they could react harshly if they were disrespected. It was believed they would often inhabit termite mounds. So uh, one easy way to earn the wrath of a Nuno would be if you were to kick its mound or urinate on it or do something else to disrespect it. If you did something to disrespect a Nuno, it would spit on you. And if it managed to hit you with its spit, you were cursed. Now, how you want to uh, have that curse take effect, it's up to you. I mean, a simple like, you know, minus one or minus two to attack rolls or saving throws should suffice. But it was said that if you gave the angry Nuno a gift, that would cause it to lift its curse. We also see a creature called the Bakunawa, and this was a winged sea serpent. It was said this monster was responsible for causing eclipses. And that's actually a very common motif in a lot of ancient mythologies. We do see stories about dragons or dragon-like creatures that are said to cause eclipses. The Naga is another type of monster that you can find in uh, Filipino mythology and also is very appropriate for uh, the D&D campaign as well. So you can find uh, that in your uh, monster manual. They also had monsters similar to mermaids and mermen. Uh, one type of spirit, the Dewada, that's actually very similar uh, to a dryad in terms of its behavior and its attitude towards people. We also have something similar to a nymph. It's called a Berberoka. And this is a water spirit. It was said that it would drain water from lakes and ponds and then use that water to drown its victims. You can also incorporate the Cyclops into a Filipino campaign. Ancient Filipinos believed in a monster called the Bungisnagus. And this type of Cyclops, it is usually very strong, very tall. It had uh, uh, fangs in its mouth, or not fangs, but tusks. Usually they were pictured as being laughing, though. Uh, they were very mischievous, and it was said, though, that despite their great strength and their keen senses, they were actually very easy to outwit. So if you were to encounter such a creature, usually your best uh, hope is to try to outthink it as opposed to outfight it. There's also a type of monster called the Duwendi. And this is similar to a lot of the fae folk uh, that we see in Irish and European mythology. These would actually be similar to brownies or leprechauns. I guess in a way you could also compare them to the house elves from the Harry Potter series. These types of creatures could be both helpful or antagonistic. It all depends on how they're treated. And it was said sometimes if you wanted to gain the favor of one of these spirits, you would leave food or other gifts for them. Another vampire-like creature we see is the Man-Anagal. 
And this is a creature that it looked like a person. It could separate its upper body from its lower body. And it preyed entirely on pregnant women. It had a very long, flexible tongue. And it would use that tongue to, well, what it would do is it would separate its upper body from its lower body. It would make sure that its lower body was well hidden. Its upper body would fly onto a roof. And then it would stick its long, flexible tongue down the chimney where it would try to uh, use that tongue to suck blood from the, the fetus. Now, in order to defeat this monster, you needed to find its lower torso while its upper torso was out hunting. Then you would need to sprinkle salt or garlic on it. And the reason this is important is because this would prevent the upper torso from rejoining the lower torso. And the reason you wanted to do this is because if the lower torso and the upper torso couldn't recombine, the creature could then be destroyed by sunlight. Next, we have an interesting creature called the Tikbalong. And this is a monster that looked like a muscular human, but it had the head and legs of a horse. It was said to be able to cause people to hallucinate, so you could give it a variety of illusionist uh, spells. And it was said that they would attack women, and then those women would give birth to more uh, tikbalongs. Filipino mythology also has a creature similar to a goblin, and it's called a Tianic. And this creature was said to be the spirit of a baby who died before it was baptized, or it was also said to be the offspring of a woman and a demon. It was said that they take the form of a normal baby in order to draw a victim into it. Then, when it had the opportunity, it would revert to its true form and then attack. We also have a creature called the Ek-Ek, which is a half-human, half-bird creature that is similar to a harpy. Finally, Filipino mythology does give us one equivalent to the Sasquatch, or Bigfoot, and that's the Capri. This was a hairy, dirty giant, and it was said it would scare children who were outside playing at night. It would also like to mislead travelers to make them go around in circles. And it was believed that once a Capri uh, tricked you like this, where you kept going around in circles, the only way to break free of its uh, curse is to put your clothes uh, on backwards or to take them off. And, you know, if you could do that, then that would break you free of the curse that this monster was uh, bestowing upon you. Well, we're going to bring this episode to a close. I hope you found the material uh, fascinating and informative and Hey, hopefully it'll uh, make you interested in doing a historical campaign based in the Philippines, or uh, hopefully there's enough information about the Eskrima martial art here that might make you think of ways to incorporate Eskrima into your Dungeons & Dragons campaign. So with that said, I'd like to thank you for listening, and have a good evening, or morning, or afternoon. Whatever it is, wherever you are, and happy gaming.